Hello, and welcome to Human Is My Label. This is your host, Emily Purry. I am a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sibling, and a former athlete. I work full time. I am the founder of Rapid, a nonprofit organization, and I'm legally blind. I am so excited about opening the conversation about everything equity. We will primarily be talking about disability, as that is my lived experience, and it is often the minority left out of the equity conversation. I am passionate about equity for all identities, as I have family members from the communities of color, LGBTQIA, disabilities, and we span all ages. It is my goal to normalize these conversations, get people comfortable with the uncomfortable, and include everyone. After all, we are all human. So thank you all for joining me here today. Um, We had a great turnout for the last podcast, and with all of the current events going on in the nation, I felt like it was a great opportunity to bring one of our most popular guests back, Paul Brown, to talk about um, what the white community can be doing in this anti-racist movement that we see going on. And so I would like to welcome back Paul Brown. Woohoo! Yay, Paul Brown! (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Hi, Emily. Hi. 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 I I almost feel like people should record all of our conversations. I think so too. (laughs) They're usually groundbreaking. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We'll solve all the problems eventually. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so we were just talking offline, and a, a great question came up about. You know, how do organizations do this if, you know, one of us here and there and everywhere are doing this work, but we don't have the power behind the organization? One person within an organization cannot change an organization just as one person in the nation can change racism and and the history of racism. So I just wanted to throw that back at you as if one person can't do it, how, how do we do it? Well, and, and uh, full disclosure, I think, you know, one, one thing I always try to say anytime I begin a conversation like this is I am certainly not an expert and I definitely have more work to do. And one of the things that uh, was part of the background on the conversation we were having is that I think there's plenty more that I need to be doing um, in my company. And uh, one of the interesting things that I'm wrestling with now is I've I've been very committed internally to make it so that uh, if my organization sort of voluntarily comes along with me, that that will be enough to get everyone to see the light, if you will, and to start working in favor of racial equality and uh, equity, sorry, and, uh, and inclusion. And I'm coming to the conclusion that unfortunately, um, if you sort of leave it to the hope of the best in an organization, it's not the, so much that the people in the organization are not good, but organizations resist change and systems resist change. So um, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I need to move it from less about being something voluntary to more about being something that is a specific expectation and, and requirement for working within my organization. And I think um, 
you know, this is an important moment for a lot of people. I think I have been uh, reluctant to sort of um, really get uh, explicit about requiring certain things to change. Um, and that may be the right thing to do uh, about other topics. Like, for example, <laughs> do we want to have a, um, you know, let's say uh, unlimited vacation policy? Well, that one you can probably take your time on <laughs> and you could probably build some consensus around all that. But I think what um, what communities of color and specifically black and African-American identifying communities are telling us right now is that this is not fast enough. And so um, I, I think uh, that is an important message for all of us to internalize. And that means uh, that we're going to have to all be a little bit less comfortable. And that means yeah. that we're going to have to all be a little more brave. You know, there will still be angry white people who are resisting this uh, movement, but frankly, the listeners of this podcast probably aren't in that group. So mm -hmm. we should recognize that there's some, there's some challenges up ahead. There's, we're going to have to put it out there and we're going to have to stand up to um, attacks just as communities of color have been doing forever. <laughs> exactly. Well, and it brings up an interesting point in the training world, as you know, I do a lot of training facilitation, all that good stuff. Um, in the training world, training has if we mandate training people are angry and disconnected and if we don't mandate training then the people who need to be in the room aren't in the room so it seems like this is a similar conversation about bringing people along in general and, and on, on a bigger level that companies need to stand for this and require this and the people who don't mm -hmm. want to follow along maybe maybe don't need to be there maybe that's extreme or not um and it's the same with the trainings on a much smaller level if if we make everything voluntary the people who need to be in the room aren't there so how do we kind of navigate that world and i feel like that's what you're kind of bumping up against as well for sure i mean i think that you know there's a lot of um really interesting um uh, tools and processes that we've built up in the HR world that really prevent this sort of intentional activity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you start talking about explicitly hiring for um, communities of color or explicitly hiring black and African-American um, uh, candidates as an intention, then you get into immediately conversations around affirmative action and are you just hiring for skin color and this sort of thing. And I think um, those sorts of conversations and that sort of resistance is what enables this system to perpetuate. So mm -hmm. if we're going to get serious about not perpetuating the system, we're going to have to behave differently. And I think, um, you know, that affects all of us, including me. I, I you know, again, I don't want to, uh, I'm not trying to differentiate myself from anybody else. Uh, this is something that uh, it actually is tough. <laughs> it's yeah. really challenging to figure out how, how hard can you commit and what, you know, what things are actually going to rise up to stop you because the, the, the reason this system is not changing is because it's so good at restoring back as quickly as possible some sort of normative behavior mm -hmm. uh, so that we don't actually end up with a new system on a very often uh, cadence. Yeah. Well, that's actually a great, seg great segue into kind of the reason for reaching out to you <laughs> on such short notice. So I thank you um, for all the <laughs> listeners out there. As I mentioned last week, the things that I had on the docket to play just did not feel right playing. 
And so I have really been intentional about figuring out what the audience is looking at and how we can make a difference on this platform that I have. And so I reached out to Paul and I said, I need you. And here we are. Um, but that segue, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but that segue that I was talking about, so people listened to last week's podcast and had a lot of questions. I had a lot of people reaching out, especially white people saying, what do I do? How do I get involved? How do we change our communities around us? How do I, um, what do we do next? And so that's, that's what this podcast was really about. And when you were just talking about uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> going back to that normal, it reminds me of that chapter in the white fragility book that we talked about, you know, going back to some kind of normalcy is what we all crave. And we often hear, oh, I wish we could just go back to the good old days when we could say and do whatever. We didn't have to think so much about, you know, what we say and how we say it. Right. And that is for every topic in this podcast around disability, around equity, around skin color, gender, doesn't matter what we're talking about. People wanting to go back to normal, but it just reminds me of that normal wasn't good for the minority communities. Normal never was good for anybody but white dominated cultures, white cisgender male cultures is the only people who felt normal and good about, about normal. Totally. So, so I think that's, a, that's a, a great place to start this conversation um, and to get people to realize that normal wasn't good. And for a lot of the white communities, around they're saying oh my gosh this is so much violence and so much tension and so much this and so much that and so i really encourage the listeners who feel that way to imagine this being everybody else's normal or the the minorities especially communities of color normal this this chaos if you will is how they navigate the world in the past and 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 they're tired of it <laughs> um yeah yeah, a very wise, uh, uh, super amazing woman named Cyrilda Summers McGee, who uh, I'm lucky enough to know, uh, she said something to me recently that has stuck with me quite a bit, uh, because she said that a lot of white people uh, right now are using terms like the apocalypse or the, you know, the reckoning or the collapse or these sorts of things. And her comment was, you know, it's really only white people making statements like that because to people of color and certainly to black and indigenous communities, um, they've been living in that state for a super long time. And I remember another friend one time described the state of the indigenous peoples of this country. This is their post-apocalyptic wasteland. They're living in it every day. And yeah. like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty intense thing to internalize. So you know, it is possible that uh, many of your listeners uh, are at least able to be comfortable and work from home and use tools like uh, video conferencing to uh, connect with other people, as I am, uh, as for the most part you are, and you and I are able to stay in contact. But um, but we need to recognize that that is not the normal for other people, even pre-COVID, and it's certainly not the normal for, for communities of color post-COVID. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what can white people be doing? And that's something obviously, so Paul and I are in many groups together and have received many, many emails <laughs> about what can I be doing? What should I be doing as a white person? I'm not one to go protest. 
And so just so you don't feel badly about that to all the listeners, neither am I and neither is Paul. We aren't out there on the streets, but, or and is that kind of a better way to say it? There is a need for that and there's a place for that. And what else can we be doing? And so, Paul, I'll throw that over to you. Uh, and I, I think locally I've been getting a lot of, of questions about that, but also on a nationwide level, um, you know, where can white people start in this journey? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, think, I think that, um, I think marching and protesting is a super important uh, part of this. And any of your listeners that have done that or are doing that, thank you because ultimately this does not get done without that work. Um, uh, I think that every individual person has to decide for themselves, but uh, we definitely need people to do that. So if you're able to, um, I would say go march first and foremost. Um, that is a personal decision. Uh, but I would also say, if you're a white person and you wanna show up to march, don't do it because you are trying to lead something. <laughs> do it because you are trying to lend support to someone else. Uh, do it with humility and and follow the lead of people of color. Absolutely. Uh, the next thing I would say, just as as important, is um, if you are a person with any sort of privilege, um, take some of the money and the and the privilege that you have and apply it to these organizations. Um, you know, starting with. Uh, uh, most obviously Black Lives Matter. Uh, you can find them easily online and you can donate to them. Um, but there are other organizations. For instance, there's an organization uh, called Stand Up for Racial Justice, uh, Surge, S-U-R-J. And if you search for Surge in your community, um, they certainly are accepting uh, money. The um, That does tend to be a white-led organization, um, but there are uh, white-led organizations that are certainly uh, working really hard in this space. There are bailout funds for most major communities. You can do some searching for uh, various bailout funds, which would get protesters out. Uh, there's a lot you can do with your dollars. And frankly, uh, social media usually has quite a few links. Uh, a mutual friend of Emily's and mine named Pharaoh Bolding, P-H-A-R-O-A-H, B-O-L-D-I-N-G, pharaohbolding.com. Uh, he's got a whole, whole list of uh, places you can donate to and uh, organizations that are doing good work. Uh, so certainly look for uh, black-led organizations that you can donate money to that are specifically working on the um, issues at hand right now, as opposed to, um, you know, I think there's a lot of money that is needed by groups like the Food Bank and places like that, but I think this moment requires real intention around um, putting money in the specific organizations that are at the front line right now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think uh, now let's talk a little bit about um, doing something because frankly, showing up to March but not lead and giving money may not feel like you're doing much uh, or or may feel like you're not necessarily uh, affecting real change. Mm -hmm. And so what I, I, I want to talk about the most, Emily, and I would love your thoughts as well, is um, the importance of white people uh, stepping back and instead of trying to rush to do something, actually work on examining their whiteness and, mm -hmm. and educating themselves about how that shows up. Uh, I feel it's really important uh, to both to, um, <laughs> it's really important both to uh, internalize what's actually been happening and, and how that's shown up in your life. And also um, perhaps most importantly, before you go to your neighbor who identifies as a person of color or 
you know, the one black employee at your company, um, before you do that and say, I really want to know more, demonstrate that you really want to know more by actually looking at and researching the literally hundreds, if not thousands of books and writings and online articles uh, written by people of color about their experience. And so let me pause there because I'm sure you have some ideas as well. But I think this is a core, if you want to do something for real, it's, it's about education first and foremost. Yeah. And I, I a hundred percent agree. And I feel like we go back to um, the beginning of this conversation where we were talking about how does one individual change an organization? And the answer is you can't. So if it's not one individual, then why am I doing this work? Well, I think one of the biggest things that we hear as white people and that many have, uh, of us have felt at one time or another is I'm not racist. I don't, I, I want peace and justice for all. I, I, I have a black husband, you know, all these things that we say, right, how can I be right. racist? <laughs> and, and I was there at one time, you know, I dated black men. So therefore I wasn't racist. I mean, it, and it right. was just right. that <laughs> awareness of how ingrained our whiteness truly is and how, by not recognizing it and being ashamed of it and being um, dismissive of it and being neutral of how um, deeply racist and white our country is, um, is so important. And it's so hard to swallow at the beginning of this journey. It's so hard to swallow saying, I am a white supremacist. I mean, I remember coming home from one of my first <laughs> like white, <laughs> I don't even know what it was called, but it was a white, um, you know, awareness group, if you will. And I was telling Jameson. I, Say that again. You came back. You can edit it later. I came, came back, back from, from this group. And <laughs> I told Jameson that they called me a white supremacist. And why did they call me a white supremacist? I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not racist. I'm not this. And I like, how dare they? And I was all offended. And so in this work, I, I started digging into it and immediately all my guards went up. I said, no, this is crap. This is, <laughs> and I didn't mm -hmm. get it. I didn't get it. Um, and until you really start to swallow like what that means and what people mean by saying, or the book specifically White Fragility says white supremacy is. And, and I, so I feel like us talking about the good, bad binary just for a moment in this podcast is, is hugely important um, for people who are new to this journey. And I say, you know, we're all racist and white supremacists. I don't want people to turn off the podcast because it, it doesn't mean we're bad people. You can have these thoughts and have these things. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person for having, having those thoughts and structures in my lives. It's what we do about it now. Just like the bias that we have. Bias in itself isn't bad. It's once you become aware of your bias, what do you do with that? Do you choose to go down that pathway or do you choose to change your behavior or challenge your bias? Um, so yeah, your thoughts, thoughts on that good, bad binary? Yeah, you know, I think another, like I, I always try to think of examples that are ludicrous when you say them out loud uh, because <laughs> it highlights how broken this is, right? So it, it would be like if your town was powered by a nuclear power plant and you had uh, nuclear waste that you needed to dispose of, but you weren't allowed to say the word nuclear waste because that was, that was deemed as too, too touchy, right? 
And yeah. so you had to have these conversations that were kind of like roundabout about nuclear waste because like that's what racism is, you know, the um like we as as business leaders, for example, are afraid to use the word racist or anti-racist. Uh and we're afraid to use words that that are are just nouns. <laughs> like yeah. saying the word racism is not the actual problem. It's all of the things that happen because racism is right there. <laughs> and uh yeah, I, I just think that there's um there's plenty of opportunity for uh people to sidetrack this work and I expect, you know, as all of us become more visible in what we're trying to do, um we will we will inevitably run into angry people who feel like uh whatever they understand this to be uh in terms of of equity work uh just as a collective um, way to describe it uh there will be people who are always you know well uh, i'm a white man and uh if you take away my right to a job then i'm harmed and so why is it okay for you to harm me you know in the interest of not harming somebody else it those are largely diversions and, and distractions from what we're really talking about. And I think that's the, it's, it's hard to, um, it's, it's always going to be hard to persuade somebody who has their mindset on something that's true of me as well, by the way, it would be hard to persuade me right now that racism does not exist because I, I wouldn't believe that. Right. But, um, but it's equally hard in the other direction. And I've certainly had challenging conversations with friends uh, who view the world differently than I do uh, around words like racism and and what that means to me and how it shows up and what it means to them. But I think, you know, um, as a perfect opportunity to demonstrate that you are not racist, <laughs> uh, I would say that one of the most important things you can do is invite um, the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and the writings and the and the television shows and the movies of black people, African-American and African-identifying people um, into your mind, into your heart, into your home. Uh, watch, um, you know, there's no shortage of things on YouTube even prior to COVID uh, written by um, many very intelligent and capable people of color. And because of the miracles of YouTube, you can even go back and watch uh, James Baldwin speaking, who was just shockingly uh, insightful in how all this stuff shows up. Uh, and in particular, I would just actually put a plug in for Amazon right now. Uh, if you are the type of person who prefers to watch something than read something, um, if you go to Amazon Prime right now, they are, they've highlighted on the top of their Prime page, their video page, all of the documentaries that they have around a myriad number of issues, including the James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. And if you have Prime, that documentary is free to watch. And it was shortlisted for Oscars and various other oh, awards. Cool. But it's also exceptional, and it's it's uh, Sam Jackson narrating, but he's narrating all in James Baldwin words. So it's all told in the first person, even though it's a new documentary. And it is, it's exceptional about Baldwin. It's exceptional about um, the the space that he was in at the moment that he was alive, and also um, just some really uh, great thoughtful commentary on society that that they have the original recordings of. So it's not reenactment; it's all the original recordings. So YouTube is great for catching up on stuff like that. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, let me pause there. And uh, I have a, literally 10 more things that you can do in the education space. But Emily, what what uh, what about you? What are the spaces that you are trying to learn more about? Yeah, I from, mean, I think I for me, so it's been really interesting. Um, 
I haven't done a lot of book groups like we're doing um, on White Fragility. So I've read White Fragility. I've read other books, but it's always been on my own accord and like listening to them, et cetera. And so I, I also challenge all of you to put together a book group because it has been so much more impactful. Um, we go mm. through a chapter a day, uh, a week and we talk about it. And so because I know I have to talk to, what is it, eight or nine people or something, seven or eight, people that we yeah. about something it intentionally makes me think and process through each chapter versus just listening to each chapter back to back to back to back to back to back to back and so i have had more realizations just by doing the book group than when i read it on my own i was like oh yeah this is all you know very true da, 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 da. but i just kept going it didn't give you time so the book groups are huge for me um, we've been watching a lot of shows on Netflix as well around race because of my kids, um, seven, 16 and 20, um, really talking to them about race and about these, the issues that are the current events going on and, you know, how to stay safe. Our, our son is about to be driving, which is terrifying, especially right now. And so we're yeah. trying to, you know, prep him, um, also I wanted to pause and a lot of people on this podcast listen because it's disability focused typically. And so yes. this is an area I really want to touch on because in many of the disability groups that I have sat in, people say, what about disability? What about disability? What about disability? And so I really want to challenge people in that community to stop for a minute because at one point I was one of those people too, like leading with race. I was like, but what about me as a person with a disability? But what about this? But what about this? So um, I, I challenge you all just because we are a part of another minority community who is uh, oppressed and has been often forgotten and discriminated against. Yes, we have all experienced those things. And if you are a person with a disability, and a person of color, your experience is that much more magnified. Um, and that's something that I really want to point out because doing some of that individual work as a person with dis a disability um, is a different lens because often you see the discrimination as a person with disability, but it's still not the same as race. And so I want to challenge you to keep listening if you're out there with a disability and, and you're saying, oh, it's not me. It's not me. It is us. It is still us. If we are, if our skin is white, we still have these thoughts and experiences. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. And I think also, you know, a really important part, uh, <laughs> Sorry, Emily. Uh, as a white man, I would like, as able-bodied white man, I'd like to add something to what you just said. Um, <laughs> but the, like, intersectionality is an incredibly important part of this discussion, and I definitely think we have to make sure that we are um, making space and and thinking about um, people experiencing disabilities, and. I think that community as a whole should easily be able to um, acknowledge that if you are black and have a disability is a even further complicated experience. Uh, and um, not to mention if you're black and a woman or black and trans or black and disabled, I mean, uh, excuse me, and, and a veteran and disabled, uh, you know, the, the complexity of intersectionality is really significant. And, Absolutely, yeah. um, 
so I think that the the ultimately the the disability this the community experiencing disabilities um, will find a lot of allies in the anti-oppression movements in general, and that's even more evident when you start considering race and how that shows up in those spaces. Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, so there's tons of books, there's tons of videos, there's tons of stuff out there. And and by the way, we will be linking a, um, a link to the show notes that um, gives some lists, and then you can always reach out to me, emily.purry at purryco.com. That's emily.purry, P-U-R-R-Y, at purryco.com. Um, and so all this will be linked below because we're going to give you a lot of stuff today. But the other thing that I think I really resonate with, and this is COVID and then it is <clears throat> this time that we're in with the, the anti-racist, um, pro protests and all that, but what are we telling our kids? And mm -hmm. you sent me an awesome article from the New York times that we will definitely link below about how can white families teach their kids about racism, teach their kids about privilege, start having those conversations because I can imagine that um, having those conversations with an all white family is very awkward because the adults in the family, most likely if you haven't been doing the work yourself, don't really know how to have those conversations. And, and, with my work as a as a disability advocate it's difficult when it comes to the kids like how do we send these messages in a positive empowering yet also really talking about the hard stuff that is going on and so um we have a link with a whole bunch of books for kids um really being honest and talking to your kids about difference in skin color differences in abilities differences even in your own family if it's hair color if it's eye color if it's height if it's you know whatever it is differences are celebrated and i think that's one of the big messages that resonates with me because it's when the, when it comes to the kiddos man it kills me um and so yeah just looking at the kid piece of it what can we be teaching our kids about racism and anti-racism yeah, and I think, you know, um, I, I might have mentioned this once before or when we spoke last time, but education, really thinking a lot about how are your children being educated? Um, you know, what are they being taught about Black culture and Black history? And um, do they understand the Black history prior to slavery and how significant uh, everything that came out of um, African culture uh, and all of the many, many ways that the whole world uh, owes that region of the world a, a debt of gratitude for um, a variety of inventions and, and getting people and society and civilization kind of off the ground. When you think about the complexities of building um, pyramids 6,000 years ago, you know, I, I, uh, I often think that, that there's interesting parallels with that in the iPhone, just in terms of the technological advances required to make that thing happen that long mm. ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think that at really thinking about are your children being taught about things like restorative justice and nonviolent communication, um, I realize that these are not explicitly race things, but they're very much different than what people like myself were taught growing up. Um, you know, justice was always punitive. Um, schools were separated by race, not just because there were good and bad schools, but also because 
Um, I was taught very early on that, you know, white people inherently did better in school than black people. And so my classes were always different, uh, even from the black kids that were in my school. So like really think about how your children are internalizing a lot of the messages they see. Mm-hmm. What, what about the shows and the movies that they watch? Are you aware of how race shows up in those spaces? Because there's so much socialization that happens. You know, are there mm-hmm. school books multiracial when they read about kids their age? Do they see kids from a variety of races? And are those kids trying to do more than sort of beat their peers in some contest, which is very sort of meritocratic and white society. So I definitely think, uh, you know, unfortunately it does require a lot of extra work on behalf of white parents to not allow that to be the only message that their kids are getting. But again, like we were saying before, imagine if you're a black parent and you have to try to find those resources for your children because everything they're getting is the same thing that now you're seeing for, for your white children. So I think that's mm-hmm. uh, edu- education at all levels of a family are really a critical part of this. And I say that as someone with no children, so that makes me, I think, an expert, right? <laughs> Definitely an expert. I love it. Um, no, but I think even in seeking out, I mean, I bet um, at least half of the things you mentioned just in that about what you could teach your kids, a lot of white people, adults don't know. So in your pursuit of being a white person, understanding uh, black history or before slavery, not just slavery, but like we're, you were just talking about the, the pyramids, etc. You know, in our pursuit of that knowledge, in our pursuit of that understanding, bring your kids along with you. Uh, you know, obviously seek it out and make sure it's appropriate for whatever ages, but bring them along in that history and you guys as a family can all learn together. I know as right. my family in this, um, this time that we're in, we are balancing the messages between my seven-year-old and my 16-year-old. And my 16-year-olds are a lot more uh, direct and a lot more uh, poignant to what's going to keep him as a male African-American safe and um, what my daughter, who's seven, is going to experience. And we have to change that message and be careful. Um, But we, like I said last week, we've had conversations about Kennedy talking about why why people hate brown people and so the messages are there um, and so then it's just facing it head on um, so let's see so we've talked about mm-hmm. giving definitely if that's the only way you can you feel comfortable digging into this is giving money definitely do that we've talked about the individual level of learning um, and I think the other piece of that is a lot of the people, like I said, I think I already mentioned this, maybe staying neutral. Like, I don't, I think we can love some police. I think we can, you know, not say we're racist. And I think we can, uh, you know, I don't know, just that neutral stance, if you will. And and that's not helpful or being in denial that this stuff exists. That is not helpful. It, it does exist. And swallowing that and admitting that you're part of that problem if you are a white person that has been raised in this culture of America um, are, are big steps. What about, what else should we talk about here? Well, I think um, the one other thing I would just stick in there is that um, uh, I think transparency is the, is the way to set us all free. So I will be transparent and I will say to you, that um, 
as I was starting my work in the space, you know, and I would meet people who were, who had been doing it a little longer. And so they were in essence more aware than I was, maybe even a way to describe them would be more committed than I was at the time. Cause I was mm-hmm. just figuring stuff out. Um, I remember hearing from them uh, uh, things like I had a friend say to me one time, I'm only reading books written by black authors right now. And I thought, well, that's interesting, but it <laughs> sounds like first it sounds depressing. And secondly, uh, you know, you'd have to actually work to find them. And I don't know if their stories are going to be interesting to me. And it has taken me quite some time. But what I now believe is that in part, I have been, um, socialized to believe that there is a certain way to write literature and there's a certain way to um, say the uh, words in English and there's a certain way to um, craft a story and tell it in a book and that sort of thing. And um, as I am doing more work in, in exploring some of these resources and I run into a book that's, let's say, hard to read or a story that's hard to, um, when I say hard to read, what I mean is uh, number one, it doesn't sound like it's told from a white voice. And so I don't necessarily identify with the writing style. That's one way. And then an, an additional way would be, um, you know, frankly, I have always known that the black experience is depressing. That, that is not, that is not new to me. I just had told myself this story that said, well, I don't need to read it. I already know that, you know, um, uh, to your point earlier about the good, bad binary, um, you know, I I was part of a board of directors for a, a nonprofit organization that uh, made a change in its pro- policies that said that they were going to require all board members and staff members to attend a specific anti-racist workshop. And uh, and I tell this story because I, I'm trying to highlight uh, that it, it still, is, you know, there's nothing special about me, but I quit the board over that requirement. And um I think that there's a lot to take away from that, but a big part of it is I am not racist. I'm not going to go to your anti-racist workshop and learn about racism. I know racism is bad. Those people in the South, you know, that's the story I told myself. Right. And so um, a year later, I actually took that same workshop and it was amazing. And I recommend it to everybody. (laughs) But but in that moment, like I wasn't hearing it. Right. I was fragile and I, I, I just didn't want to be told this this uh, especially i didn't want to be in a room with with people of color that were going to tell me how bad it is to be a person of color like i, I knew that um and the fact of the matter is number one i definitely didn't know that but number two and i think really importantly um it is only through opening your mind to the language and the experience of other people that you can ever possibly start to respect somebody else's experience and so i think that's a incredibly important um, thing to understand is that the reluctance to hear a voice that's different than yours is also part of what you've been socialized to do. And so I think that there's um, one of the key points I would make is there's a ton of stuff out there. And while the black experience can certainly be seen as depressing because uh, certainly racism sucks and the situation that we collectively as white people have put people of color through is unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But the uh, but there's also a lot of joy in black lives and there's a lot of uh, culture and excitement and creativity. And so I think that, um, you know, I, I, certainly people of color listening to this are like, yeah, no duh, but, but white people I think are actually socialized not to see that. And so yeah. um, in addition to documentaries and in addition to um, books, certainly read books by black authors, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, um, 
But the what I would say in all sincerity is that black comedy is actually a really effective way of you starting to hear that message. Um, if you watch a Dave Chappelle show or 10, if you're lucky enough to do so, uh, you will understand more about what it's like to be black than you understand today. If you watch uh, Blackish, the the show mm-hmm. on uh, I think Love it's on it. CBS, yeah. uh, or that same creator's show on Netflix, which is called Black as uh, or I'm sorry, I mean Black AF. Um, <laughs> like you will actually internalize things about the black experience that you do not know today, and um, and you'll do it in a way that you know, like for instance, Twelve Years a Slave. I, I wouldn't tell people to start there, not because it's not powerful and important of a story, but because that plays into this idea that like white people don't want to be told something bad or depressing. Right. Um, In fact, we kind of have to keep this mindset that everything is fine. Otherwise we would want change as well. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but look at, look at the comedies, look at the people who are really um, effective at communicating. That's a a similar message through uh, a lighter forum. And, and even just letting that in, you'll start to see the world a little bit differently. So I'm a little long winded there, but This is a thing I've been exploring a lot myself, too. Yeah, and that's another recommendation we'll put in the show notes is Blackish is the one show, Black Mm. AF is the other show, and then Mixedish, which is a mixed family, a white mother, I mean, a black mother and a white father, and they have three kids. And so they talk about, in a they add humor to it, but then they bring in history to it. So it's a great family show. I would say for older kids for the first two um, and then for mm-hmm. the younger one, I think is appropriate for the younger kids. Um, but they're great depictions and they start bringing it in, in a, a little softer way, if you will. And they've been great. They've been great. We actually had both the middle and the youngest sit down to one of the mixed dish um, shows the other day mm. because what the little girl was trying to check the boxes on her homework of white or black and there wasn't a mixed box. (laughs) Mm. um, So they talked about that and brought in, you know, no matter if you're mixed or whatever you, you are seen as, as black to the white community. So anyways, yes. So that's all. And I I hate, I hate that it has to be lighthearted and funny, but I also recognize that that is unfortunately the situation we're dealing with, right? We're exactly, we're sensitive. Um, the other thing I would say is that right now, social media, um, I'm not actually super great on social media, but uh, I realize that it does rule many people's worlds. And, um, you know, whatever your platform is, I would say an important thing to do is start paying attention to the source uh, for some of the things that you are seeing show up in your feeds if, as it relates to this, uh, to this race-related talk and, and racial justice and um, institutional racism and so on. Like, as you see people sharing things, start to follow the original posters until, and go back as far as you can until you get to a person of color uh, who likely created whatever it is. Because uh, there's a lot of really important, urgent, very timely discussion around race and racism and how things are starting to play out. And as we as a society start to figure out how to um, hear the needs of the, of the protesters and, and understand uh, that we need to change things and start making changes. It's going to be extremely important that we are paying attention to what people of color are saying through this change and, and specifically black and African-American identifying uh-huh. people. Um, they have a lot to say about this. And so before you get on board with any changes that are being announced or creatively being discussed, 
make sure you know what people of color are saying about those same changes. And I think social media, um, rightly or wrongly, is going to be a really important place where a lot of that messaging gets discussed. And that means sometimes it's going to be confusing and people that you, multiple people you follow are probably even going to disagree occasionally. And mm -hmm. again, I think that is some of the challenge. We have to actually be thinking hard about how this stuff plays out and, and um, taking our time and evaluating our options and that sort of stuff. Uh, as white people, uh, so that we get out of the way faster and don't cause more harm. Exactly. Yeah, that was the one of the things on my list was about social media. And I think this was brought up in one of our meetings is, as a white person, when you're posting something, make sure you think about how that may land on the black or African American community. And if you think it may be more traumatizing at times, then maybe not post it. Or if you think that you know, it, it may hurt more than help. Um, maybe post something you say about it versus putting the video. Um, uh, somebody was commenting on the George Floyd video and in, instead of just saying their comment about the George Floyd video, they posted it again so that black or African-Americans on their feed then saw it again and it just continues to re-traumatize. Um, and so be mindful of that as white people. We have to consider how this will land and we want to make sure that we're doing this work. And, and I think the biggest thing, and Paul and I had multiple conversations last week about this, as white people, everybody, we are going to mess up. We, somebody is going to call us out. Somebody is going to say something that we said was offensive or that we did was wrong or that we should have done this. And that is going to happen. And we have to learn to be okay with it. We have to learn to say, thank you for telling me, and I'm sorry, you don't need to explain yourself. All you have to say is, I will try and do better next time. And as long as we're always trying to do better, and you don't just throw your hands up and say, I'm done, I'm over this, I'm out, I, I can't do anything right, I can't do anything wrong, I, I, everything, I, everything is just bad, everything I do is bad. Um, you, you have to get past that if you truly want to be better in this work, because in my 38 years, you know, I've only spent probably five of those doing racial equity work. And so there are a mm. lot of years that my brain has been trained to think otherwise. And so we have to be willing to screw up. We have to be willing to make mistakes and keep going. Well, and I know you said it at the beginning of this call, but in case it gets edited, <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, I think it's a really interesting thing for you to say you have only been doing racial equity work for about five years because your daughter is how old? Seven. Yeah, this yep. is, and this is entirely the point. If, until you actually see the, um, the, the water that you're swimming in, you can live a perfectly healthy life, have a very happy and healthy relationship with a person of color and still not realize your own racism as a white person. And that is a- exactly. That's an That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And I've been married to James or we met 10 years ago. So yeah, it, it, right. <laughs> exactly. it, it does means that I was attracted to him, but I didn't know what effect my white ism, my whiteness had on our lives or on the history. I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. And I thought because I had a disability that I understood it. And I think that's what held me back for longer than even I would be willing to admit would be that 
you know, I experience it. I experience prejudice and discrimination and all of those things. And I have been oppressed and I have been that minority community. So I get it. So therefore I'm not it. But mm -hmm. just as a person of color can be an ableist, meaning they, you know, right. have prejudice or discrimination against uh, people with disabilities that they aren't aware of. I can be a racist and not have a, a clue that I have harmed or hurt a person of color. And I think that is the biggest right. thing to get past. We all have privilege of some kind. Some Paul has privilege over me as far as being able-bodied, you know, like we all have privilege. And if we don't recognize that we are all going to continually hurt others until um, that changes. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that the, uh, the final thing I'll just say is that while we should be showing up, we should be out actively looking for groups uh, that are doing good work in this space. Obviously, Black Lives Matter is a big group, but if you um, don't have one in your community or you're not aware of one, check out um, uh, SURJ, Surge. Uh, and there's a, for instance, if you're in Portland, Surge, SURJPDX.com has some information. Um, but I, the one thing that I, uh, I think is also really important to remember in this work is don't expect a cookie. <laughs> no. Um, yes. Seeing other humans as fully uh, realized humans that deserve the same rights that you have and that are not getting them, uh, that is not prize worthy. That is, that is called being a normal human <laughs> and yeah. the yeah. fact that we have lived this long without seeing it and without rising up to say hey this is wrong is actually the thing that has been the flaw and um and the important part about that i think is uh you know as i think one of the reasons why emily and i became friends so quickly is that once you get behind that initial curtain of not seeing race and not understanding uh, the fact that your experience and your privilege uh, substantially uh, outmeasures whatever accomplishments and hard work you've done in terms of your outcomes, uh, until you reach that point, um, you are living a conflicted life uh, w without even naming it, you know, and, uh, and I say this for me too, this was definitely true in my situation. I uh, and I did not realize until I had a series of, of kind of life-changing experiences, uh, which weren't really that life-changing for most people, but for me, they really affected me, uh, how I had been taught that that was the right way to be, that, that there was a difference, there was a separation, there was a need to be separate. Um, and the, you know, the lack of appreciation of how other cultures affected my life and what debt I owed to those cultures uh, was all part of just buying into the idea that I needed to keep, you know, my head down, show up at work, don't ask questions. Um, and I think that that is, is probably the, the most specific thing that I could say has changed in the last year uh, is really reaching this point where it feels amazing to name racism. And it feels amazing to be honest about that, not because I needed to feel amazing, but like the you know, there's a there's an expression in this work that says my liberation is tied to your liberation. Mm. Uh, and the first time I heard that was the first time I really understood this. Right. If I if I work in favor of others liberation, it actually makes my life better. It frees me up. I don't have to live in this weird, you know, split world in my head where I have to treat people differently because of the color of their skin. I can actually just um, embrace everyone as a fellow human on the planet. That this podcast, human is my label. Like it's exactly right. We, 
we are all the same. And the fact that we're not treated the same is what we now have to work to undo. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and then the, the one more last thing that we've said the last thing five times. Um, the, yes. Yes. Reach out to people, learn, you know, intentionally engage with people of color, intentionally engage with people with disabilities, whatever that community is that you don't feel comfortable around. I often say get comfortable with the uncomfortable, but try mm -hmm. and make friends, not because they have a disability, not because they're a person of color, but because you want to get them know, get to know them as a human, which means don't walk up to me and you know, ask me about my eyesight, but come up to me and talk to me about my family and who I am. Like, I'm not some anomaly. I'm not some like super robot, but um, I'm a human. And if, the more you expose yourself, if you will, or get out of your comfort zone and make friends with people that don't, that don't look like you, believe like you, feel like you, act like you, move like you, the more this awkwardness is going to change and the more you will see how these, these things affect communities at, at the, on the large um, as, a, as a whole. So, Completely agree. Yeah. Completely agree. And I think I, I, <laughs> the, the screwy part about this, Emily, is at this point I, I sometimes um, manage to space on your eyesight limitation. And I'm like, yeah, go or get to know Emily. She's also one of those people who has a different lived experience than you do. And uh, yeah, but I guess not everybody gets that option. <laughs> <laughs> well, and <laughs> yes, yes. So it's it's all good it's all good um i think this is this is it is exciting this is horribly exciting this time we're in that it has come to this and that things haven't changed but um or i should say and it is exciting that this much movement is happening um jameson was driving home from our son's swim practice up at the lake uh, and uh, he said the most touching thing that happened today, and he was driving through Forest Grove, way out there, hardly anybody, and he said there was one white family out there on the corner with their signs and their kids and their family, one white family out there protesting in the middle of <laughs> Forest Grove, Oregon, um, that Black Lives Matter. And he said, you know, it wasn't because it made them cool to stand with their friends. It wasn't, you know, it was an intentional act that they wanted to get out and do something in their community. And he said it was the coolest thing for him and Elijah to drive by and see. So even you can make a difference in a family, everybody, if it's not protesting in the big cities with COVID going on, whatever it is, um, there is something you can do. We are going to post a bunch of links to this, these show notes, and you can always reach out, like I said. And thank you again, Paul, for another awesome episode. Absolutely. I, I love being on the show, and I hope in any way this helps anybody, uh, and I'm happy to come on anytime. Awesome. Perfect. And Paul was on episode 10, if you want to go back and listen to that conversation as well. So... Thank you so much, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you so much for joining me here today at Human Is My Label. Don't forget to subscribe, share this with your friends, families, and coworkers. 
get out there, get comfortable with the uncomfortable, include everyone, and push yourself to be better every day. If you're interested in coaching or corporate training or learning more about RAPID, visit us at rapidorgan.org. That's R-A-P-I-D-O-R-E-G-O-N.org. You can find me at emily.curry on Instagram and all my other social handles are below. Have a great day and I can't wait to see you next week.